All right. <coughs> Morning. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 19 today, which uh, if you've been keeping track, you might have been expecting 18. Um, so I made a mistake counting either the chapters or the uh, weeks, which is too bad given that I earn my living counting. Anyway, what that means is that we've missed the end of Paul's second missionary journey um, when he was going through Corinth and then back to Antioch. And instead, we join him today at the beginning of his third journey. So he's traveled inland through modern-day Turkey, and he's arrived in Ephesus. So let's start by reading the first 12 verses, then, of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There are about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the, heard, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. So I'm going to be looking particularly at verses 8 to 10 this morning. That's the part where we read that Paul spent two years reasoning and persuading people about the kingdom of God. But I first want to just take a quick look at the context in which we find these verses. So Paul has arrived in Ephesus. Now Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a major commercial center. It had a famous temple to the goddess Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was located just south of Izmir in modern-day Turkey. Now, we know that a strong church was planted there. And, of course, Paul wrote a letter to there some years later. And it was also one of the churches that Jesus addressed in the book of Revelation. But at the time that Paul arrived there, there was no church. Though there were 12 men that were described as disciples. Now, some people argue these people were Christians already. Others that they were disciples of John. So they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know about his death and resurrection. That's not a debate I want to get into today. What we can say is that Paul taught them more than they knew already. And that they received his message and were baptized into the name of Jesus. And after Paul laid his hands on them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And so these people then became the founder members of the church in Ephesus. Then at the end of the passage, we read that God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. So these were miracles even above and beyond ordinary miracles. So even handkerchiefs that had touched Paul's skin were being used to bring healing to the sick and to cause evil spirits to come out of people. 
So here we see Paul clearly moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, exercising the gifts of the Spirit. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a chapter that particularly addresses the gifts of the, of the Spirit. We see mentioned gifts of tongues, gifts of prophecy, gifts of miracles, and gifts of healing. So all of these are things that we see mentioned here in this passage. And these are all the sorts of things that we typically associate with the work of the Holy Spirit. And all things that we've looked at as we've been going through Acts and looking at this theme of partnering with the Holy Spirit. But sandwiched between the accounts of tongues and prophecy at the beginning of the passage and accounts of miracles and healing at the end, what do we have? Well, we have verses 8, 9, and 10. And there we read that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So for three months, Paul spoke in the synagogue, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And after they didn't receive the message, he spent a further two years reasoning daily, in the hall of Tyrannus. So for over two years, Paul reasoned and persuaded. And if you think that sounds like hard work, then I'm absolutely sure you're right. It was very hard work. But here's the question. When Paul was engaged in this hard graft, was he acting less in the power of the Spirit than when he was performing signs and miracles? You see, I think that many of us, when we think of the gifts of the Spirit, we tend to think of the more obviously supernatural gifts, things like prophecy and tongues and healings, faith, words of knowledge. And these are certainly all there, and they're all gifts that we are encouraged to seek after. These are all gifts that we would like to see exercised more in the church here, but they aren't a complete list of the gifts that God gives us through the Holy Spirit. And some of the ones we don't focus on so much might surprise you. So, for example, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 12, we see mention of the gift of administration. Administration. Now, a few of you have been around the church long enough to remember a day when a number of us went over to Shepparton Church. And there we did a Myers-Briggs test. Now, in case you don't know, a Myers-Briggs test, you, you basically answer a whole lot of questions, and then it, um, you tot up the scores, and it gives you some kind of a psychological profile. And having determined what sort of person you are, it then tells you what kind of jobs you're likely to be good at. And you can guess, maybe, what came number one on my list. Yeah, it was. It was administration. So wrong. So wrong. I find it really hard, and I'm really bad at it. I can't even count properly. So, and papers. How is it that papers get lost so easily? You put it down, and it goes. It's, it's bizarre. But anyway, as you can imagine, I don't think much of the Myers-Briggs test. But I do think highly of those of you who are gifted administrators. Now, we don't often uh, honor our administrators, but Sarah and Eric and Keith, you are amazing. <laughs> we really couldn't do without you. Thank you for your faithful service. But I don't want you to ever think that what you do is just administration. You're using God's gift to bless the body. 
Administration is one of the gifts that is listed under one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the same list, we have helping and teaching. Again, gifts that a number of you exercise. Not perhaps as glamorous and exciting as the more obviously supernatural gifts like healing and prophecy, but gifts of God even so. And gifts that are important and gifts that illustrate something about partnering with the Holy Spirit that I want to draw our attention to this morning. So let me read verses 8 to 10 again. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the first thing I want to note then this morning is that walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit needs perseverance. Paul was evidently filled with the Holy Spirit. He was walking with the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. But this didn't make him passive. In fact, quite the opposite. He worked hard, really hard. You can see this all the way through Acts. He's like one of those toys that you, you can squash down and they just pop right back up again. So Paul, he gets beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned. He gets run out of town, but he just keeps going. And he's doing the same in this passage. For three months he spoke in the synagogue, and when they wouldn't accept his message, he didn't just give up, he found another venue, and he carried on for two years. Now, one of the oldest manuscripts of Acts adds a little more detail. It tells us that Paul spoke in the hall of Tyrannus every day between 11 in the morning and four in the afternoon. Now, this was the hottest part of the day um, in, that, in that area, the part of the day when the town basically closed down for a long siesta. So Paul taught each day at the hottest time of the day when everybody else was napping. But there's more, because he'd probably been working since early in the morning at his trade as a tent maker or a leather worker. We read in Acts 18 that Paul stayed and worked with Aquila and Priscilla, in Thessalonica, when, where we was in chapter 17, he said that he worked day and night so that he wouldn't have to depend on the people there for, uh, for support. So this was his normal practice. So every, every morning, Paul worked at his trade, and every afternoon, in the heat of the day, he taught for five hours. And then presumably in the evening, he prepared his lessons for the next day, and he did all this for two years. And incidentally, I think we can assume that he set an example to the believers there of what it means to work hard and to persevere, an example that they followed because the church in Ephesus was one of the churches uh, mentioned, um, uh, um, talked of in, by Jesus, addressed to by Jesus in Revelation. And what he said to them was, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Now, he had a warning for them too because they had lost their first love, but for this at least they were commended that they worked hard and persevered. And there's an obvious lesson for us here. Jesus himself considers hard work and perseverance to be praiseworthy. Walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit doesn't absolve us of effort. I spoke a while back about the privilege of working with God in what he's doing. I talked about the joy and the pleasure we can experience in partnering with God, but that doesn't mean we're just playing a game. Yes, Jesus bears the load, but we've been given real work to do. There's a harvest to be brought in. There are new Christians to be discipled. There are people to be loved and to be cared for. The church is described as a body, with each part having its part to play. 
elsewhere we're described as an army. An army, of course, is, and the life of a soldier is characterized by discipline, hard work, and perseverance. Now, if we here in church have a work to do, and some of it isn't very glamorous, and sometimes it's just going to feel like we're doing the same thing over and over again, and it doesn't feel much like fun, and maybe we just want to give up, but we're called to persevere, to keep on going, and to keep on keeping on. Now, many of you here are involved in the different activities of the church, and I want you to encourage you. I just want to encourage you. Keep going. Jesus is delighted with your perseverance. Just because it's hard work doesn't mean that God isn't in it. Just because the fruit is slow in coming doesn't mean that it won't come. Paul labored for over two years, but at the end of that, we read that all of Turkey, Asia, heard the word of the Lord, and a strong church was established. Hebrews 12 encourages us saying, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here referring to the saints of the Old Testament, let us throw off everything, every encumbrance and every sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out for us. So keep going, throw off the things that hold you back, encourage one another, and keep pressing on. The second point, very closely related to that one, and that's walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit, involves hard work. Now, work is a normal part of the Christian life. We live in a society that places a high value on leisure, and rest and leisure are okay. In fact, God himself measured, uh, modeled rest for us, um, but only after he'd worked for six days. And we were made for work. Right back in Genesis chapter 1, which is about as far back in the Bible as you can go, Adam and Eve were given work to do. Now, after sin came, the work got harder, and it lost some of its, lost some of its satisfaction. But work itself wasn't a consequence of the fall, and we should expect to work too. And that'll take different forms for different ones of us. It might be in the home, it might be in the marketplace, it might be in the church or somewhere else, or it might be a combination of all of these things. And here we see in this passage Paul at work, not just working in teaching the gospel, he also worked to support himself, and he worked to help the needy. In chapter 20, he addresses the elders of the newly established church, and he says this, he reminds them, with these bare hands, I took care of my own basic needs and those who worked with me. In everything I've done, I have demonstrated to you how necessary it is to work on behalf of the weak and not exploit them. You'll not likely go wrong if you keep remembering that our master said, you are far happier giving than getting. Jesus himself modeled a life of hard work and self-sacrifice, and he called us to imitate him. Now, I wonder whether perhaps we've tended not to emphasize the need to work, because we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we need to work to earn God's favor, or worse, to think that we need to work in order to contribute to our salvation. And these things are true, but in avoiding the error that we can't earn salvation or God's favor through work, we mustn't fall into the opposite error of thinking that work is unnecessary or some sort of optional choice. James tells us quite clearly that our faith is evidenced by our work. If we've truly received God's gracious gift of salvation, we cannot help but respond through grateful obedience. True faith will be demonstrated through action. Jesus' disciples will be known by the love they demonstrate. 
And I'm not preaching on this today because we've got gaps on the rotors that need filling. I want you to see that part of what it means to partner with the Holy Spirit is really practical and down to earth. And it's an essential part of the authentic Christian life. We were made to work and to work according to our Creator's design. It's both an act of obedience and an act of worship. And if you're not sure how to work that out in practice, do speak to one of the leaders here. We want to help you find where you can play your part. Working and persevering in our work is part of what it means to partner with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean being controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit and partnering with him, we are not controlled. We're not taken over. We're not like puppets with God pulling the strings. We're not like robots being forced to act by some lines of code. Yes, God's Holy Spirit lives in us. He empowers us and he enables us. He gives us boldness and strength and courage. He gives us wisdom and other gifts, but he doesn't control us. God never wanted puppets or robots. He didn't want beings that would be forced to do what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted. He wanted beings that would respond to his love, a people that would choose to walk with him, to work with him, a people that would willingly desire to be with him, beings that he could share the abundance of his goodness with, people that he could extend the joy of relationship to. In fact, his desire for a people that would freely choose him was so great that he accepted the inevitability that people would use this freedom to turn from him. He counted the price he would have to pay to win us back, and he gave us freedom anyway. Freedom to choose to love him, and freedom to choose to rebel and do our own thing. Now, just to be clear, God is sovereign, and he could control us if he wanted to, but he chooses not to. Instead, he longs that we would respond to his love, to use our time, our talents, our gifts, and our resources to work alongside him. And we should note, too, that just that we have been commanded to obey all that Jesus taught us. So just because God doesn't force us to do this doesn't make it optional. It just means that we can choose to be obedient or we can choose to be disobedient. He's given us that freedom. And the freedom that God has given us means that we have the responsibility to make decisions and choices. We have to choose how we will use what God has given us. We have to do the work. We have to make the effort. God works through us, but he works with us as partners, not as tools. The freedom he's given us means that we are responsible for our decisions, and we will be rewarded or not according to those choices. See, I think there are two extremes we can go to as Christians, each equally wrong. At the one extreme, we can so emphasize God's supernatural power and sovereignty that we reduce ourselves to either mere spectators of what God is doing or just the tools that God manipulates to do what he wants to do um, through us. 
At the other extreme, we can take the view that God doesn't really get involved very much with practical matters here on earth. So if something needs doing, then we'd just better get on and do it ourselves anyway and not expect too much in the way of help from God. So in this view, it's God that is reduced to a supporting role. And of course, neither of these extremes is right. God has chosen to work with us. He honors us by giving us and gives us dignity and purpose by giving us the chance to work with him, using the gifts and resources that he's given us. And some of those seem to be more natural and some more supernatural. But whatever the gifts are, God wants us to use them. And my prayer is that we would all be filled more and more with the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to ask God to give him more of his gifts that you can use. But I don't want any of us to be under the illusion that when God empowers us and gives us gifts, that everything then becomes easy and will no longer require effort or work on our part. So thinking practically for a moment, we can ask that God will fill us with his spirit and lead us through this next year. But at the same time, we can make plans. We can think, what are the ways that we could partner with God, with him this year and seeking his kingdom? And why don't you write those things down and see if you can put them into action? We can pray that God will build his church here in Chertsey, but we can also think, what part can we play in seeing that happen? We can pray that God would bring our, um, our neighbors to himself, but we can also choose to visit them and get to know them, to talk with them, and to show them kindness. So I want, you to, I want to encourage you to think, what has God called you to do? Now, you might know something specific that he's given you, but if not, that doesn't get you, off, get you off the hook. Because as you read through the New Testament, what you see is lots of general commands that you can take and uh, work out for yourself. So, love your neighbor as yourself. Pray continually. Offer hospitality. Continue meeting together. Make disciples. There are loads. Can you make a plan to see how you might push yourself a bit further in some of these? And then try and make it happen. This is part of what it means to partner with the Holy Spirit. And he will help us to be obedient to his call. All right, so we've looked more generally at some of what Paul, um, uh, what we learned through Paul's hard work and his perseverance. But I just want to take a brief look at more specifically what these verses tell us of what Paul was doing over these two years. So we read that he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We look back at chapter 17, we see that he reasoned, explained and proved. Luke could have just told us that Paul told them about the kingdom of God. Instead, he writes that Paul reasoned, persuaded, explained, and proved. So what can we learn from this inclusion of this extra detail? Well, I think most obviously, Luke is making sure we understand there was nothing quick or casual about Paul's presentation of the gospel. Instead, it's clear that his teaching was thorough and logical, disciplined and comprehensive. It was communicated clearly and relevantly and persuasively. He believed the message was true, and he was determined to convince other people. So listen to some definitions of the words that Luke uses to describe Paul's teaching. So we have to reason. That is to persuade someone with rational argument, to say something thoroughly and logically. Then there is to explain. Now to explain is to make an idea clearer to someone by 
describing it in more detail or by revealing relevant facts. You take something that was closed and you open it up. You take something that was not understood and you help them to understand. To prove. Now, the literal meaning of that is to lay alongside. Like you might lay a spirit level on top of a work surface to show that it's level. So to prove is to demonstrate the truth of something by showing the evidence or by showing a line of reasoning that makes sense. Then there is to persuade, to cause someone to believe something, especially after a sustained effort. So to reason, to explain, to prove, to persuade. Now Matt challenged us last week about taking the good news we have to people outside the church. And he gave us some things to consider as we try and do that. And I want to add a few more extra ones today based on these verses. So firstly, the gospel makes sense. If you like, you can picture it as a jigsaw puzzle. There are lots of pieces, but they all fit together. And together they make a picture, and it's a picture that doesn't just make sense on its own, but it also helps us make sense of the world that we see and experience. It doesn't mean we're going to understand everything, but God has revealed truth to us for a reason. And the more we understand that picture, the more not only will we be strengthened in our own faith, but the more we will be able to explain and show its beauty to others. So it really is worth taking time to read and reflect on the gospel message and trying to understand how it all hangs together. Second then, we should, be prepared, we should take time to think, how would we explain what we believe to others? Be prepared to give an explanation. If you just had a couple of minutes, could you explain the good news about Jesus to someone? If you had an hour... Could you do it more thoroughly? Remember, to explain is to open something up, to help someone understand. So as Matt said last week, you might need to start by understanding where they are and what they think. You might want to use images that they're familiar with. Now, we want to be, might want to be aware that the meanings of some of the words we use might not be the way they understand them. Remember that some of the words we, we commonly use are, are words they might not even know what they mean. Grace and other things like that. We've got to think, how can we communicate in words they understand? Thoughts and ideas that we have and that might think are obvious might be completely foreign to them. They might not have any idea even why you think these things are so important. Paul was very good at explaining the message in a way that was clear and relevant. Can we do the same? Thirdly then, give reasons why you believe. These might be personal. Perhaps you were healed, or perhaps you've experienced God's love in some particular way. Perhaps you've seen the difference that trusting in God has made someone you know. Or maybe your reasons are more intellectual. Maybe you've been persuaded by the evidence for the resurrection or the teachings of Jesus. Or you've done as I suggested and read the Bible and seen how it all hangs together and makes sense of life in the world. Most likely to be a combination. But you should think through what are those reasons and be prepared to share them. Fourth, be prepared to stick at it for the long haul. Don't expect you'll get quick results all the time. Paul taught for over two years and we also have to be prepared to persevere. But do expect to see results. We're told as a result of Paul's sustained teaching, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, and many believed. And just note quickly, note that many believed means that not everyone believed. Not everyone will accept the message. But again, as Matt reminded us, that's not our problem. We're called to spread the seed. It's for God to bring the life. 
So how would you reason, explain, prove, and persuade? And the answer is going to be different for all of us. There'll be differences in style, differences in depth, differences in terms of illustrations and arguments. But we should all be prepared so that we're ready for every opportunity. And then finally, then this morning, I want to finish by considering the message that Paul proclaimed. Now, we don't have very much to go on in the passage. It simply says he spoke boldly, um, uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But I think we can expand that a little bit. If we go back a couple of chapters when Paul was in Thessalonica, there we read that he was explaining and proving that Jesus was the Christ and that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And between those, there's enough for a whole bunch of sermons. And, of course, Paul spent two years elaborating on that theme. Well, we're going to be a lot more brief. So let's start with kingdom. Well, a kingdom, by definition, has a king, and a king rules or reigns. That's what kings do. And when the Bible speaks of God's kingdom, it's speaking about his reign. It's telling us that he is sovereign, that he rules. And in this primary sense, we can see that God is the sovereign king over everything. He made all that exists. It all belongs to him, and he is completely in control of all of it. One day, every knee will acknowledge him and bow before him. And it's important that as we, um, uh, we remember God's, it's important that we remember that God's kingdom embraces everything. He is Lord over all. But it's clear as we look around uh, us now that not everyone acknowledges God as king. In fact, they rebel against his rule. And the, the, the wickedness, the destruction, and the pain that we see are all a direct consequence of this. And for a time, God is prepared to tolerate this, but it's always been his plan to make a kingdom where his rule is acknowledged and where people delight to submit to his will. And in the Old Testament, what we see is we see God starting to establish a kingdom under earthly kings, and we know that rarely went well. But at the same time, he promised that one day there would be a very special king, a king that would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And in the Old Testament, in, in Hebrew, this promised king was known as the Messiah, or the promised one. And the Greek word Christos, or Christ, means the same thing, the promised or anointed one. So when Paul was explaining and proving that Jesus was the Christ, he was showing that Jesus was the promised king. He had come to establish his kingdom, and that was good news. Well, or is it? As I said, a kingdom is about the rule of a king. Jesus came to establish a kingdom where his rule would be obeyed. A kingdom where people would recognize his lordship and submit to him. I think that maybe goes against the grain for some of us. See, the problem is at a human level, we would never choose to live under an absolute monarch. Because, with good reason, we believe that giving one person that much power rarely, if ever, works out well in the long term. Almost invariably, nations living under a powerful ruler end up being places of repression and fear and lack of freedom. So from a practical point of view, some form of democracy seems to work much better, at least in terms of openness and freedom. Um, but it does bring other problems, at least um, sometimes we can get in situations, and I'm really not being political here, um, but we can get in situations where we get in a, in a state of confusion and, and a lack of progress and instability. And sometimes then we think, well, wouldn't it be better just to have a strong leader who could lead us out of this mess, who could give us peace and prosperity and stability? 
But we can't do that because we know what happens if we give one person that much power. So what to do? Well, what if... What if there was a ruler who was strong and powerful enough that he could guarantee peace and stability and prosperity, but who was also truly good through and through, now and forever? A ruler who was really wise, who could foresee the consequence of all of his decisions and always do what was best for his people. A ruler who really loved his subjects, not with a distant kind of abstract love, but the kind of love that would cause him to come and live among his people. A ruler that would come alongside his subjects and carry their load. A ruler who would pay for the mistakes of his subjects, not just in the little things, but also for their willful rebellion, their hatred, their greed, their pride, their lust, their envy, their selfishness. A king who would be willing to leave the glory of his royal palace and give up everything to come among his people and to pay for their rottenness and their corruption with his own life. Now, if we had the option of living in a kingdom ruled by that kind of king, well, that would be different, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you want to live in a place where he reigned? And the good news is that there is such a king. And he does have a kingdom, and it's real, and it's even better than you can imagine. And the king himself wants you to come and be with him there. The problem is getting there. It's not that it's separated by a sea or even a wall. It's worse than that. However hard you try, whatever risks you're prepared to take, you can't get there because the condition of entry is that you have to be perfect. And you're not, nor am I. But there is a way. And that's why Paul taught that it was necessary for the king to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead. In Romans 6, Paul writes that while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We couldn't enter this kingdom because it is perfect. And we were disqualified by our imperfection, our rottenness, and our rebellion against the king. But... Because of his love for us, the king himself, Jesus Christ, came and he paid the ultimate penalty for us, even while we were still his enemies, so that we could be made perfect. And that's what it means when it said we are justified by his blood. We could be made righteous so that we can be reconciled with the king and through him be admitted to his perfect and amazing kingdom. 
That was the message Paul preached. And it's the same good news that we have today. If you're still on the outside, don't stay there. The invitation is for you to come also. Jesus has made the way. Do come and speak to one of us afterwards. And let us tell you more. If you have questions, please ask them. We would love the chance to tell you why we believe these things to be true. And if you have already come into the kingdom, remember, this isn't just a kingdom for eternity. A kingdom somewhere out there. This is a kingdom that starts here and now. God is establishing His rule here on the earth, and He's doing it through you and through me. So as citizens of that kingdom, we have work to do. The King Himself calls us to work in partnership with Him. The question for us this morning is this. Will we heed the call?